The following is a message by Pastor Caleb Bunch of Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. What we are going to do for the next few minutes is this. We are simply going to first consider what it means to delight, and then we are going to consider what it means to delight in the Trinity, and then we are going to spend the bulk of our time looking at three examples of what it looks like to live out our delight in the Trinity. Let's first begin by simply understanding what it means to delight. What is delight? What do I even mean when I tell you to delight in the Trinity? First of all, we know that delight is an act of the mind. Psalm 37.4 commands you, delight yourself in the Lord. It is not a suggestion. It is not a recommendation. It is a direct command from God that you are called to delight yourself in the Lord. And that means it is something that you are told to do. That is something that begins in the mind. In order to delight in the Lord, we must delight in who He actually is, not who we have imagined Him to be. So delighting in the Trinity is firstly an act of the mind. You cannot delight yourself in someone or something unless you know what it is that you are looking at and have encountered. Now, the most central reality in all of existence is the doctrine of the Trinity. Consider the fact that before there was anything, before there was you, before there was me, before there was a planet, before there was the chair you're sitting in, before there was anything, there was nothing but God. And God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they are the ultimate center of all of the universe and all of reality. Therefore, they are central to all that exists. They are the foundation of all things. And the most central truth of the universe is that God is three in one. All spiritual growth, therefore, occurs first in the mind, understanding and comprehending the central reality of the universe, which is God himself. We are then transformed by the renewing of our minds, right? Isn't that how we become different than the world that we used to live like, in the world that we used to chase after and follow, it is by the renewal of our mind. Renewing it in what? Renewing it in the person of God. If you read through Romans chapter 1 through 11, it is a picture of what it looks like that God was saving people, but it's not mainly about people. It's mainly about God's act in the world, how the Father was functionally preparing and designing and ordaining and foreordaining and calling and how the Son came to act out those callings here on earth, to live out what it looked like to be a perfect person where we have failed, He succeeded, and then transferring that love to us and that righteousness to us at the cross while taking our sin on Himself, just as we heard about in Charlie's uh, sermon just a moment ago. And then finally, the Holy Spirit indwelling us and empowering us to live out this Christian life. All three of these persons of the Trinity are working in tandem to grow us. And as we read through those first 11 chapters of Romans, it is informing us that this is a story of God. Your salvation is God's story more than it is even your story. And the fact that God has done all of this should blow us away, which is why at the end of Romans 11, He's just absolutely, I think, with his jaw on the floor when he says, for from him and through him and to, thing, to him are all things. Uh, then we get to Romans 12, and he says, therefore, based on all this, based on the fact that God has done all of this, therefore, 
Do not be conformed, but be transformed. And the transformation that takes place is a renewal of your mind in seeing the things he has just proclaimed about God himself and the working of the persons of the Trinity. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. It begins in the mind. So delight begins when the mind engages and examines something in order to determine its worth. Every time you look at something or someone, you are sizing them up. I used to, I was in Italy for like nine months of my life. Sometimes I'd say I lived there. (laughs) I was there for a while. I loved it. And uh, there's one thing that was common when I was especially in one part of Italy in Rome. There was everywhere where I lived around that area, everyone had a smart car. And there's something about me when I would look at these smart cars where there was just this innate desire that I wanted to tip one over. Uh, I I wanted to walk up to it, and I knew I could take it. Like, you size something up, and I knew I could win in a fight. And I just, everything in me wanted to just try it. Just try to tip this thing over. And I never did it. But I probably could have at the time. And the reason we do that is because we we are constantly sizing things up when we look at them. No matter what or who it is, we are examining them. And part of what we are doing is we are determining, is this something I delight in or something that I oppose? And when we talk about delight, it begins in the mind as we, whether it's conscious or subconscious, we are determining whether this is something that is worth my delight, whether this is something that is worthy of me enjoying it and taking it in to myself or pushing it away. All spiritual growth that exists begins by being delighted in God. The most central reality of the entire universe is the existence of the Trinity. And therefore, when we delight in this Trinity, that is what propels and produces true change in us. We are transformed by the renewings of our mind as we hear the word and respond in faith. So delight begins when the mind engages and examines something in order to determine its worth. But delight is not only a response of the mind, It is also a reflex of the heart. Let's take a negative example of this. We have James chapter 1. James tells us in verses 13 through 15, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and, when, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. What's the process here? What's the root of our sin? Where does that whole thing begin? What's the bait that we're chasing? It's our evil desires. And desire is simply the craving of whatever delights us. It should be no surprise to us, then, that the blessed man in Psalm 1 is the one who delights in the law of the Lord, rather than all of the passing pleasures of the world. You don't have to be told what to desire. It's a reflex. It happens naturally. You desire whatever you naturally desire. You look at a painting, and you know if that painting delights you or not. You smell a flower, and you know if that is a delightful scent to you or if it is repulsive to you. It's important for us to understand that As Paul is spreading the gospel, he makes note that there are two responses to that gospel. He says this in 2 Corinthians 2, 15 through 16. He says, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. In other words, we're that aroma to both categories. 
We are the same smell. No matter who we're talking to, we give off this same aroma. But there's a different way that two people receive it. He says, to one, a fragrance from death to death. These people who are dying, they're not interested. They smell us and they are repulsed by this gospel. And then it says to the other, a fragrance from life to life. It's important for us to see here what Paul is getting at. He is declaring to us that there is a natural knee-jerk reaction to the person and the work of God through the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. So I just want to pause for a moment at this point, and I want to make an important clarification. Everything that has been stated so far this morning has been aimed at a Christian audience. There's a reason for that. This is a theology conference where it's on a Saturday morning. I'm assuming none of you guys are Seventh-day Adventists. Perhaps you are. I don't know. Most of you guys probably aren't at church on a Saturday morning and afternoon, but you're here learning about the Trinity, so there's a natural inclination on our part to assume that you actually have trusted in Christ and believed in Him and have been, been saved by Him. There's an idea in our mind as we have presented this material that you actually have a relationship with this Trinity that we're talking about, and we're just having a DTR here. We're just defining what that relationship actually looks like. But I don't know you. Even if I do know you in person, I don't know your heart. I don't know who you actually are when you stand before God. And perhaps you don't even know if you're actually saved, but I want you to know the gospel. So I just want to share with you what that is. Charlie gave a lot of detail on this a moment ago, but I want to simplify and make it very, very basic that God the Father was displeased with you. The Bible says that you are an enemy of God. You have rejected Him, you have rebelled against Him, and the way that you can display that is by sinning in whatever flavor of sin that you most pursue or enjoy. But your life has been a way for you to declare, I will not have that man, that God, that person over me. I am my own master. That is where you stand when you are born and as you grow, and that rebellion takes all different forms. You might be the worst of the worst in the world's eyes. You might be the golden boy in the world's eyes. It doesn't matter. In God's eyes, you have fallen short of his standard. And the Bible teaches us in the book of James that if you have broken one of his commands, one sin, it is as if you have broken them all. You are guilty of the whole, it says. So you are here, if you are not in Christ, standing before God as a guilty person, someone who is worthy of God's eternal and most powerful wrath forever. The Bible teaches that there is no hope for you to return to God because you cannot erase what you have already done. There's no way that you can fix that relationship. You cannot make it better on your own. You can't go from being bad to being good. There is no statute of limitations on your sins. You are an enemy. And the Bible teaches that you must be his friend or you will experience his wrath. There is only one way for you to be right with God, and that is what God has provided. Because the good news is that God provides what God demands. He demands that you are perfect and you have been imperfect. So he sends his son who lives a perfect life, who dies a death that he did not deserve, where he makes this perfect but unfair trade, taking all of our sin and giving us all of his righteousness. And then... That is when salvation is accomplished. Then, in time, when you hear the gospel, that work that was done at the cross is applied to your life when you hear and believe that good news. 
So I want you to examine your heart. Maybe you've heard this gospel a thousand times, maybe a million times. I don't know if that's even possible. Perhaps you've heard it every day of your life, but maybe you haven't yet believed. So examine your heart. And I want to encourage you to really do this, no matter how firm you are standing in your belief, because we are told, are we not, to examine ourselves to see whether we are in Christ. Here's some questions to ask yourself when examining. Consider, is there any part of you that is actually delighted when you read the Word of God? Do you desire to pick it up, or do you really want to push it away and leave it sitting there? Are you offended by the, every time you pick it up, what it has to say to you? Are you offended by the reality that God views you as a sinner and that he says you are in need of saving? Are you happy living in your sin, or does that bother you? Does it eat away at you? Do you, do you feel the weight of that sin and how it separates you from the Lord? In that sense, do you desire to be near the people of God, those that God has redeemed? Are you bored when you pray, or or do you actually enjoy spending time with the Lord? Do you delight in it? These are questions to begin examining. Where do I really stand with the Lord? Now, if you have trusted in Christ for your salvation, then it will necessarily begin to take effect in the way that you answer those questions. It is unlikely that you have ever been able to answer all of those questions with the perfect yes. I have always been delighted in Christ, or no, I have never been delighted in sin. But as we trust in Christ, our delight in the Lord will increase, and our taste for the world will decrease, because delight is not merely something in the mind, nor does it stop when it gets to the heart, but whatever you delight in is displayed in how you live. You're going to worship whatever you love. And whatever you delight in, it's going to move you towards either worship of self or worship of God. Delight in God is the only way to actually produce genuine worship. So let's consider now our second point. How do we actually delight in the Trinity? Now that we've considered what it means to delight in general, what does it look like to actually delight in the Trinity? Well, at the very basic level, our delight in God begins by knowing Him as He has revealed Himself. See how each of his attributes are holy and perfect. Now, we're not going to spend a lot of time digging into his attributes, and you've been fed a lot, so I'm actually going to be jumping over some things that I was planning to tell you because you've heard them so well already this morning from multiple angles. But I will say that as Christians, we need to be absolutely committed to the life of the mind. We must be sure that we are building our foundation not on just how I feel about it today, or some random thought that popped into my mind while I was taking a shower the other morning, but our life needs to be grounded in the reality of what the universe is and who God is that created this universe. We want to understand things rightly. We are to love the Lord our our God with all of our mind, but we must not just be able to memorize and say that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the essence and just memorizing some theological statement from the Athanasian Creed, although I recommend that you do, we also must respond to that truth and live out its implications. If we really love the Trinity, we will live based upon those implications. Now, I don't mean that you are going to consciously meditate on the nature of the Trinity all the time, although I do think things like this, where we set aside a day or some special time to focus and study in on the Trinity... 
I don't mean that you're going to have that consciously in your brain at all times where you're constantly looking at the universe and thinking Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but that it will be a happy, settled way in the back of your mind to view the universe, that these become the lenses through which you observe all that is. Now, how are we supposed to get to this point? Well, as you read the Bible, don't just jump past definitions or descriptions of the persons of the Godhead as they are working. See why it is that they speak about the uh, particular character, work, and purposes of the Trinity. In what ways are they all the same, ontological, and what ways are they unique and separate in terms of their working out, the uh, economic, as we have just heard today. Don't just look at your Bible to see what it says about you. It's ultimately not about you. Look at the Bible to what it says about God, because it is his miraculous self-revelation to us. He doesn't have to tell us who he is, but he has. We don't even have to realize that there is a trinity, but he has told us who he is. There is no way, I I think that um, this was said earlier by Pastor Dave, there's no way we would actually just develop this if we just looked out at nature. Well, I see three volcanoes over there. There must be three gods over there. That's how the ancient people used to think, right? We would never come up with the idea of three in one. But God has, in his divine love, revealed to us his own nature and being. So just considering biblical truths about the Godhead like we have been doing this morning should give us cause to be filled with joy that treasure like this exists in the universe. Just knowing about the fact that this is true should make us joyful. So soak in the definition of the Trinity as we learned about it this morning. That itself would be cause for delight, right? But not only do we delight in his attributes, but we also delight in his affection for us. As we have already learned this morning, the God had shared in perfect love and in perfect purpose for all eternity past. There was never a moment when divine love failed or faltered. The love of the Trinity should be viewed like the hottest fire in the universe. It radiates forth from the Godhead. But we have every reason to delight in the Trinity because God has ordained that he would share in that love that he would draw us in and bring us in to share in that love. One quick example is found in John 15, 9. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Or in the same way, or in the same manner, I have loved you, abide in my love. He's telling us the Father has this infinite, unbound love for me. And now I have that same love for you. It's identical. Now just abide in that, soak that up, remain there, bask in that. This picture of abiding in Christ is to teach us to remain connected to him just like a vine is connected to a branch. The metaphor there is designed to show us that our source of spiritual power is flowing not from us, but into us from the only source that can give it, which is Christ himself. And it is for this reason that he has come to unite us to the Father so that we might experience the love of God. According to Romans chapter 8, nothing can separate us from this love that is in Christ Jesus. The fact that we are now immersed forever in this love of God and that his affection for us will never diminish or deteriorate, that is cause for delight, is it not? Don't let my love grow cold. Your love might grow cold. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Some days I feel it. Do you feel it? He is not prone to wonder from you. 
His love and affection is unfading and it does not deteriorate. But we don't only delight in the Trinity's attributes and even we don't even just delight in its affections for us, but we also delight in his assignments. God has given us commands. He has told us what to do. People often say that Christianity is not a religion of do's and don'ts. That's a weird thing to say. That's not true at all. That's ridiculous. There are hundreds of do's and don'ts in the Bible. Of course it's a religion of do's and don'ts. But there is something radically different between doing something because you are required to by law and doing something because you actually love the person who asked you to do it. So it is a religion of do's and don'ts, but it's not a religion of compulsion. It is a religion of drawing us into what is right and good and true. Delighting in God looks like doing the things that delights him. There's a strong link that exists in the scripture between abiding and delighting and obedience. These three things are inseparable when we look at them. Let's look at how that works itself out in the following three examples. Please know that these examples are three very huge life-engulfing aspects of your existence. However, there are literally millions of other ways that we could have sliced this pie this morning. There are, as I mentioned before, a million things that this actually relates to in your practical everyday living. In fact, I don't think there's any sermon that I've ever rewritten the outline more times than this one because there was literally everything in the Christian life comes down to this. This is the linchpin of all other doctrines. If you get the Trinity wrong, everything else will crumble. And what you do is grounded by what you believe. So let's see how delighting in the Trinity works itself out in these three arenas. First, prayer. Second, battling sin. And third, evangelism. Trust me, there's going to be some overlap here. These things are not mutually exclusive, so I probably will jump the boundaries of these a little bit, like a little kid coloring outside of the lines and going a little bit over every once in a while into the next region. That's okay. These things do overlap in real life as well. They work together in your everyday life, and they're not isolated categories that exist apart from one another in the Christian life. Therefore, I feel like it's okay for me not to be super specific and stick inside of each one of these uh, throughout these next three points. This is where we're going to land the plane today is with these three things, but I want you to see how these examples of the Christian life rightly lived should help us to delight in the Trinity and shows us what rightly delighting in the Trinity looks like. Let's begin with prayer. Prayer is probably the most widely practiced but least understood of the Christian disciplines. Consider the radical implications of prayer. God the Father ordained whatsoever comes to pass. Right? Did he not do that? He determines the end from the beginning. He literally called out the end from the beginning. And this is not like me playing basketball and calling my shot, where I say, I'm going to shoot the corner three, and then I walk over there, and I shoot the shot, and I've got like a 12 to 20% chance of making it. No, when he calls out the end from the beginning, it is a guarantee locked in place. We know exactly that that is going to happen. God is not guessing at the outcome of the universe. God does not play dice. Isaiah 46.10 says, Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purposes. God is not speaking with hyperbole. He is not speaking outside of his own authority. He's speaking truth in declaring, This is exactly what I'm going to do. Whatever I have planned to do. And I will not do anything that I have not planned to do, and nothing will ever happen that is outside of my plan for what I want to do. So this should mean that we have no agency in our life, right? That we have no ability to do anything that we want to do. Of course not. However, God not only ordained 
the ends, he also ordained the means. Consider the fact that God the Father structured the course of human history in such a way that our prayers are involved in the working out of his plan. He planned for you to pray. When I pray to the Father, he has always known that I would ask him this question, and he has always known how he would answer that question, and he has always known that that answer, whether yes or no, would be for the growth of my faith and for the benefit of his kingdom. So when he says, yes, I have the honor of seeing God take my prayer and use it in the grand plan of the universe, and I know he intended for me to take part in this from the beginning. When he ordained me, he also ordained that I would pray this prayer and that he would use that in the outworking of his plan. And I have the inexplicable honor of being invited into his work by doing nothing but asking. I just get to say, please do this, and I get to watch him work. And we pray in the name of Jesus, and that means that we, pr we come into the presence of the Father only if we have been given access to the Father by the Son. And because Jesus has purchased our entire life at the cross, and he has purchased entry for us at the cross, we can now boldly go before the throne of grace. Now, this does not mean that we approach God the Father with an attitude of carelessness or with a flippant, cavalier manner. Rather, it means that as we enter into that heavenly place with our request, Jesus says, he's with me. And we get to go in because we have someone who has escorted us. We who are undeserving have been carried to the table of Christ, of the Father, by Christ. Jesus grants us access to the Father without fear of judgment or reprisal. And when I pray, I am being assisted by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. I want you to consider for a moment Romans chapter 8, verses 26 and 27. It says this, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Wow. Like, that's a big bite right there. There's a lot to say about this right here. There is much that could be expressed from this passage, but at the very least, if we want to boil it down to something incredibly simple, it is definitely telling us that we are weak and our prayers need help, right? He declares that our misunderstanding of how to pray is a form of weakness, and the Spirit helps us in that weakness. Let's talk about the sun for a minute, not the Son of God, but the star at the center of our solar system. This thing is massive. I love space. One of the, I just really enjoy studying about what's going on out there far beyond what we can see. One of the things that's amazing to me is that our sun is so big that I can't even begin to comprehend it. And it is so dense. If you take together its size and its density, you could fit 1,300,000 Earths inside of it if you just squeezed them together. It's that powerfully dense. And if you consider the fact that this sun at the center of our universe is also clocking in at about 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit, it is blazing hot. So let's just use the sake of imagery here. We can't go into the presence of the Father, and it's much more hot than the surface of the sun. If we were to enter into his presence, we would be instantaneously destroyed if we were not escorted by the Son of God. Let's just say that we're going to have a prayer meeting on the surface of the sun. I need to talk to God, and that's where he is. 
This is a hypothetical statement, okay? If you're not aware, super deep of theology, this is hypothetical. Let's just say God was present on the surface of the sun, and if we wanted to talk to him, that's where we would have to go. That would be less intense than going into where he is now. But let's just say that's where he was. Well, the fact that Christ has died on our behalf, it means that he has quenched the flames of that sun. He has taken the wrath away. He has taken away the heat so that now we have the ability to go there. But I want you to understand something. If I was to go walk on the surface of the sun, I would weigh 5,414 pounds. Don't get out your calculator or whatever and look at what, the, what that means in real life. But that's how heavy I would be on the sun. Do you realize that I can't lift even probably a little car to flip it over, much less something that weighs 5,414 pounds? I couldn't stand under my own weight on the presence of the sun, much less in the presence of God. So Jesus not only takes away that fiery wrath, but the Spirit of God helps us in our weakness. So although we have access to the throne room, we also have weakness when we get there. And we need help to pray as we ought to pray. And we are allowed and enabled to do that because the Spirit of God is in us and working through us to basically take everything that we pray that is all a jumbled mess and to deliver it, deliver it to the Father in a way that He understands the mind of the Spirit and He is praying and working for us on our behalf. Do you realize that God loves us so much that He fixes our own prayers? That He loves us so much that He engages us and invites us to enjoy Him in communal prayer and then when we make a mistake or say something foolish or we mess up the Trinity, which people do all the time when they pray, he corrects that and he prays rightly for us. So we are praying in that way in alignment with God's will. Romans 8 tells us that we are weak and our weaknesses stem from a combination of the fact that we are ignorant of truth and unaware of the future and insufficiently convinced of spiritual realities, and we are encumbered by the cares of this world. And to top it off, we are still living in our sinful flesh that causes us to be susceptible to temptation. So we desperately need the Holy Spirit to help us as we pray. He guarantees that our message always arrives rightly. Now, I am made acceptable by the Son, but I am made able by the Spirit in terms of prayer. So when we pray, we pray in a Trinitarian manner. It's a way that we enjoy the fellowship of God. Many people call the Lord's Supper communion. Maybe you do that at your church. It's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's referencing the communion we have with the saints when we take the Lord's Supper. We always have communion with the Godhead. That communion is never ending. It hasn't stopped since we have placed our faith in Christ and He has redeemed us. Every time we pray, we are consciously engaging in communion by approaching the Father in the name of the Son by the help of the Holy Spirit. So delighting in the Trinity looks like enjoying His fellowship by always having an open dialogue with God, just like Paul commands us to in 1 Thessalonians 5.17. We are to what? Pray without ceasing. Let's talk now about our second example of how we live this out in this lifestyle of delighting in the Trinity, and that is in the way that we battle sin. I'm, I'm a guy that likes a lot of different kinds of food. I enjoy world food. I enjoy, I loved living in Queens where I could get basically any kind of food at any time of the day. Uh, it's a little sparser out here now that we live in Levittown. But I'm a pretty simple guy ultimately, and my favorite two foods are burgers and burritos. It kind of boils down to those two ultimate categories. And so today we're going to take a, a burger analogy. So imagine for me, if you will, a man who loves burgers. Not me, this is a hypothetical man. <laughs> a man that loves them very much, but he has only ever had one kind, and it is a McDonald's burger. 
and he loves them, and that's his favorite food. But one day, he discovers that across the parking lot, Five Guys exists, and he goes in, and he smells it, and immediately something is different. And he walks over to the counter, and he says, I have no idea what this is. What is this food you're talking about? And they're like, it's a burger. And he orders a Five Guys burger, and he has it for the first time. And he takes that first bite, and he almost passes out because it is so good. And then he takes his second bite, and he says out loud, I will never eat McDonald's again. Now, he might get confused once in a while, and he might go through the McDonald's drive-thru. But when he does, he finds that the burgers there are subpar and disappointing and unsatisfying because there is now a new first place in his palate. That battle is the same kind of battle that we faced all the time against sin. A Puritan named Thomas Watson has already been brought up a couple times today. He is famous for saying this, Until sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Now, I love Thomas Watson, and I love Puritans. But I think he actually misses the mark on this one. I think he actually reverses these two realities. It's not that we must first realize the bitterness of sin, but that rather we first realize the sweetness of Christ, and then sin becomes bitter. A different Puritan named Thomas Chalmers famously stated this. He speaks about the expulsive power of a new affection. It is that we become enamored with that which is truly beautiful and inherently valuable. Then we are no longer enamored with lesser loves. Remember the old hymn? The things of this world shall grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and grace. It's only when we see that light that everything else begins to fade. So what does this have to do with the Trinity? Well, let's consider the end of 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4, which should be up here on the screen behind you. <clears throat> now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is spirit. Now let's pop over to the next verse. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Whew, there's a lot in this. We're going to move really fast through this. Notice what's taking place in these verses. The Trinity is operating together in order to transform us into the image of Christ. All three persons of the Trinity are operating in this text. And the way that this happens is that the mercy of the Father is on us. Therefore, this results in the Holy Spirit opening our eyes. How is it that we behold the glory of the Lord? How is it that we do not, how is it that we do see Christ, although not physically, but spiritually? How do we observe his beauty if he's not standing here present with us? It is because the veil of our spiritual eyes have been lifted by the Holy Spirit to examine the majesty of our Savior. As it says in verse 18, this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. In other words, the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to recognize what is supreme perfection and what is magisterial worth that is found in Jesus Christ. And in comparison to the joy that this world promises... Those things look shallow and empty, and the pleasure of sin seems limited and unsatisfying. And if we do fall into temptation, we quickly realize that this is just a bite of something that is disgusting to us now. And there's a stark difference between what this counterfeit joy is and this thing that we used to love is and what real joy and real life is. So living in light of the Trinity means that we consciously seek to fix our eyes on Jesus, and by the mercy of God, the Holy Spirit will open those eyes to see his glory. 
as mentioned before, this begins in the mind but impassions the heart. And this makes the difference between genuine worship and vain religion. So how do you battle sin? By pursuing the face of Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit by the mercies of God. By looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, and by having your vision sharpened by the Spirit so that you might see him in the word and know that he is with you in every aspect of your life. Let's look at one last thing, which is evangelism. How in the world does the Trinity affect our evangelism in the way that we work this out in our daily lives? Not only does God graciously bring us into his love, but he has also kindly brought us into his mission. It should never cease to humble us that God graciously called us to the task of expanding his kingdom. He didn't have to involve us in that process. In fact, God could have just said, these are my elect people, these are the people that will be saved, and then when they're born, they are immediately saved. But instead, he chooses to use us to carry the message of the gospel to those who do not yet believe. The only reason you are a Christian, if you are in Christ, the only reason you are a Christian is because somebody told somebody who told somebody who told somebody who told somebody who ultimately goes back to Jesus Christ and the apostles. Otherwise, you are not saved. This message is transferred by our evangelistic efforts. And the fact that God brought us into this process should shock us and stun us and say, I am unworthy to actually be part of this. 2 Corinthians 5.20 says, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. I couldn't even be an ambassador to, to, to Kiribati. I, you know, our U.S. government wouldn't send me anywhere to represent our country. But God sends me as, as an ambassador for heaven, for himself, here on this earth to declare the glories of Christ and the beauty and the majesty of our God? We are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. That is bizarre. If God wants to make an appeal, he can do so with perfection, without stuttering, and without constantly slipping up with his words and messing up his notes like I do every day, and all these other things that we mistakenly say when we're trying to share the gospel with somebody, and we just can't get the words out quite right, and we just get scared that we're not saying the correct things, and we can't find the Bible verse that we're looking for. No, God could make a perfect call to them. He could make a perfect declaration verbally to them. And instead, it says that he uses us. He makes an appeal through us. God could have designed a million other ways for people to be saved. But God chose to invite us into that process, and he has restored us to that role that Adam was originally given in the garden to spread the glory of the Lord across the earth. Now, the Great Commission teaches us that the creed of our disciple-making is fundamentally Trinitarian, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, Right? But the scripture also teaches us that our ability to actually carry out the Great Commission is also a Trinitarian act. Charlie did a great job of explaining how all three persons of the Trinity were uniquely engaging in the process of accomplishing our atonement on the cross. But they are also each playing a unique role in bringing many sons to glory. All three persons of the Trinity are rightly viewed as not only having the attributes of love, but actually being love at the very core of their person. God is love. God the Father is love. God the Son is love. God the Spirit is love. God is love. However, when speaking to the process of salvation and the way that it is applied, the plan to display love to fallen men is always biblically attributed to God the Father. The purposes and plans are always His scripturally speaking. And this is all over your Bible, but let's just consider two quick examples. Most obviously, John 3, 16 and 17. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It is the Father who gives the Son. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. He sent his Son to die and to save. Notice that salvation is the Father's plan motivated by undeserved, inexplicable, insurmountable, inexhaustible love. That he loved us in a way that is bizarre and cannot be comprehended by our human finite minds. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, what we call the high priestly prayer that has been mentioned many times already today. And one of the subjects of his prayer that Charlie has already brought forth is that he was praying for those who would be his in the future, those who were not yet saved, but who would be saved. And he says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know you, that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. He will continue to make it known. There is a ton to say here, and the clock is the enemy. So I will simply note that Jesus' goal is to bring God's people into fellowship with God's love. And when Jesus declares in the Great Commission that all authority has been given to him, it means that our going forth to share the gospel is being done as servants of the king. We have now been deputized to his service. The Father has planned it. The Son has commissioned it. He has given us the authority to do it. And the Holy Spirit is active in our efforts of evangelism as well. 1 Thessalonians 1.5 says, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit full of conviction. They shared the gospel in power and the Holy Spirit and conviction. So why are we afraid to share the gospel? There's like a billion things you could probably write down on a card. Here's why I'm afraid to share the gospel. Ultimately, why are we afraid? We, we worry about our reputations. We, we're concerned about mockery or scorn of a hellbound sinner more than we're concerned about the kingdom of God and the mission that he has given to us. We're going out in the purpose of the Father and in the authority of the Son and in the power of the Spirit. So every time we share the gospel, we're actually joining in God's mission to fulfill His purposes for His glory. What are we worried about? What's holding us back? Why are we hiding this? Why are we not open about this? Uh, just over lunch, I'll close with this. I was speaking to a friend that I haven't seen for a decade, and he was telling me about how he came to know Christ because somebody that he worked with that I also happen to know um, this man was fearless in the face of being mocked and ridiculed at their job. And he was faithful to just be a Christian in the midst of a lot of people who hated Christians. And he just shared the gospel with this man who was here at the conference. And this man, out of all of the people there, believed. That is a stunning reality, that God used this man, who is now with the Lord, who is just faithful and I was so encouraged to hear this testimony over the lunch, uh, lunchtime. Uh, the man who was sharing with me said, he never let it bother him. He just kept telling people, what are we afraid of? What can man do to me? He is my shelter and my shade in the heat of the day. He is there as my God who has created the mission for me to join in. He has given me the power and the authority by the Spirit and with Christ. So 
There's a lot more we could say about the Trinity. We're going to leave that for the Q&A. Let me close this sermon out in a word of prayer. God, each and every one of us have a lot of areas to grow in, in terms of understanding who you are, but also taking what we know to be true about you and and portraying that in our lives and, and believing that in our heart and living it out with our hands and our feet and our minds and our eyes. Lord, I pray that the way that we we watch the world and watch the things of this world, we would watch with eyes that are glorifying to you and the ways that we speak would be glorifying to you and that we would let the Trinity affect our words and we would let the doctrine of the Trinity affect our efforts to evangelize and our prayers and that you would even cause us in our family life to recognize the roles that we have as we love one another. And Lord, I pray that in every aspect of our lives, we would dig deeply into what it means that the Trinity exists and that you have loved us and that we would build our entire lives on that. Lord, I I thank you for everything that has been said today, and I pray that this would continue to be a time of great joy this afternoon. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.